Hi, it's Dan here for Dusty Discs Radio, and this is the podcast Liner Notes, revealing chats with Canada's retro music makers. And today I'm very honored to have as my special guest, writer, actor, songwriter, entrepreneur, TV host, and VJ, Erica M. We'll be talking about the life of a multifaceted and energetic person. We'll get some other insights as well about her many and varied experiences in the music business and in life. So join us for a look inside the Canadian entertainment scene from someone who's been there for many decades. Eric M. was a popular and much-loved VJ on Much Music for 10 years in the 80s and early 90s, and has done many other projects in subsequent years as well, both inside and outside the entertainment business, which we'll get into in our conversation. So thanks for joining me today, Erica. How are you? I'm uh, I'm doing okay. I mean, you know, we are in the middle of a pandemic, which does yes. suck. But aside from that, doing great. Oh, good. Okay, well, it's it's funny because, uh, you know, mental health gets talked about a lot and, and where people are at. And it's been going on for a long time now. We're up getting up to two years here. So for some people, they're getting a little bit beaten down. Yeah, I'm sort of self-motivated. I'm all right. Yeah. Most of my work that I do is virtual. So I'm okay. I have a couple of older teens and they're doing all right, but I really feel bad for them. This is a time when they should be out and about. They should be with their friends. They should be, you know, living their best lives. And like I did, and they don't have that opportunity right now. So I think more about them. Yeah, you make a good point. And I've said that you and I are about the same age. I think we're a year apart. And I said, if if this was 20 years ago, really would have knocked me, you know, more than it has now, because I'm at a different place in life. Exactly. So yeah, good point. So I was doing my research for, for talking to you and I was going through the timelines. And the first thing that struck me about you is that you must have had this sort of bountiful, youthful enthusiasm and curiosity and energy. Because when I look at the timelines from the time you were in Montreal, and then it says you went to the University of Ottawa, I guess, and then you ended up in Toronto, and then you ended up on, on much music. I mean, we're talking five, six, seven years all that this happened, life must have been coming at you at 100 miles an hour back then. Well, actually, I made life happen at 100 miles an hour back then. (laughs) Uh, Everything that sort of I experienced was because I was really proactive. I walked up to people who were important and asked if I could, you know, have a job or, you know, work with them or help them or be a part of it. I started off when I first asked when I was 17, when I asked the uh, music director at Shom FM if I could have a job while I was going to CGEP, which is a college in Quebec. Yeah. And uh, he said no. And of course, I was like, but I'm here in your office with you. And he <laughs> said, well, you can't have a full-time job because you're going to school. But if you'd like to be a music librarian for me, so you can come in to the studio at any time. You can share my office with me. Your job would be to file records and you get Hmm. free access to hang out at Shom FM. You can hang out with the DJs. You can meet the bands when they come in to be interviewed. And I, of course, agreed. I didn't get paid to do it. It It was an amazing opportunity to be on the inside of the music business from the time I was 17 years old and all the record company reps would come in and like, I met sort of all the people that mattered in Montreal of music business at a very young age, which led to me getting a, do- a job DJing in clubs, playing, you know, punk and new wave music. Um, yeah. 
again in the in the late seventies, and again meeting more people, networking, and I was managing bands, and I just was really immersed in the music scene. I got a job um, in Ottawa when I started my my um, career at Ottawa University. I got a job at the local record store there. You know, like I was just really uber focused and um, it, and all the work does pay off, you know, it just, all the experiences and the networking ultimately does pay off. Well, it's like that youthful enthusiasm, right? People, it's infectious, right? People are drawn to that and, and it gets you indoors that you otherwise wouldn't have got into. And I like, uh, it was a famous psychologist, I can't remember who said it, but, but kids are successful typically because they don't know what they can't do. I agree with that. I agree. Yeah, I agree with that. And I, in fact, I've asked my dad a few times, like, what was I like when I was that young dad? Because I remember just being sort of super laser focused. I didn't care what people thought about me. All I knew was that I had to do those things that I wanted to do and nothing was going to stop me. But to be honest, I'm still like that today. So I do think (laughs) that it really is a personality type. Well, good for you. And, and gender aside, you know, like I had a daughter, for example, and, and one of the greatest things I was able to tell her was that, you know, you can do anything, do it. I'm your dad. I'm, I'm behind you hundred percent and you're capable and just go out in the world and mix it up and see what happens and, and go for it. And I'll be, I'll be here behind you. And that's what we both, my husband and I both tell my kids because they're at the exact right age now for that to be important. Yeah. And yeah, good. Well, yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, I think that I was lucky to be raised by parents who didn't suggest or make me uh, live a somewhat conventional life. My parents from a very young age let me do crazy things like DJing in a bar until three o'clock every night while I worked, yeah. you know, while I lived at home. Most parents wouldn't let their daughter go and do something like that. But my parents, they knew that this is what turned me on. Yeah. I was obsessed with it. And I guess they just believed that if I follow my path, I will find my way. Well, that's that's a good point too. And I, it's funny because there's a, a psychologist, I think it, Barbara Colaroso, who she wrote a book and she said that when she tried to say yes a lot to her kids and then she said, if it's illegal, immoral, or dangerous, I would say no. But if it wasn't any of those things, you want to dye your hair green? Is it illegal, immoral, or dangerous? Nope. Go ahead. And so you, you take the parameters off other than the ones that matter and let them do what they want to do. And I thought that was good advice. And I kind of did that myself with my kids. Yeah. And I try and do that with mine as well. And sometimes it's scary. For example, my daughter is hell bent on going for three weeks to Costa Rica. Now we're in the middle mm-hmm. of a pandemic and yeah. I'm going to let her go. Yeah, I, th- I think that would be fair if she's of age and wants to make her decisions. Um, you know, another point about kids is allowing them to make mistakes. You know, love your kids enough to allow them to make mistakes that they're going to yep. make. We did. I did. Yep. <laughs> you know, so, no, that's cool. So, uh, no, I appreciate you sharing that. And and then with the much music thing, it's funny because, you know, I, I'm a musician and I've been a professional musician my whole life and started playing in the mid-70s and most on the West Coast here. But when much music hit, you know, it's funny, I talk to young people and and they don't get it, how big of a deal it was. But I mean, it, it just literally changed everything overnight. I mean, we used to watch videos on Don Kirshner's rock concert or Midnight Special or something. You get the odd one on TV. But once much music hit, I mean, that was a huge big deal because now it was 
24 seven, basically you could get videos and, and watch things. So have you had to try to impress upon the younger people, how big of a deal that was, how, how sort of life changing that was for some people? Do I tell my kids or young people about what much music was like back in the day? No, I don't. I don't really. They are just discovering it themselves now. Yeah, I mean, more their friends are their friends are telling them. Do you know who your mom is, (laughs) and do you understand what she did? And but uh, I mean, the impact is what I'm talking about. The impact Mm -hmm. because because it was so for us as musicians, it was like, oh my god, now we can see all these bands. Like we can. Yeah, much music absolutely changed uh, the Canadian music scene, a hundred percent. We brought the country together, and we curated a star system that wasn't there before. Absolutely. So it was uh, a really exciting place to be. Yeah. It was a place that um, was sort of redefining what Canadian culture is. Yeah. And you were right at the heart of it. And then I guess, in a sense, you you may not think about it in those terms past in the past, but you were become a sort of a music historian of sorts as well, right? Because you have this knowledge and this information. Yes. The, the irony though, is that it, and this only sort of uh, has, I've only come to understand this relatively recently is that while I worked at much music, so for a decade, I would be on live TV for four hours a day, usually five days a week, something like that. It was like a regular waitress shift, but we just were interviewing bands and talking about music. But it was really a job that required you to be in the moment at all times. In the moment and then also thinking about 10 seconds ahead, if you will. But really just in the moment. And I think that experience of the stress of managing the chaos around me, plus thinking about what I had to say and managing the chaos in the much environment and the unpredictability of the guests that I interviewed uh, didn't allow me to create memories. Mm -hmm. So I don't remember too much about that time. Mm -hmm. I don't remember as much as probably you did or someone who watched much music a lot because you had that, the luxury of sitting on your living room uh, sofa and watching it unfold in front of you. And you had the luxury of having a relaxed brain who could take it in and think about what you were watching. Right. I didn't ever have that. So, you know, over the years, People like yourself ask me many questions about what was it like at Much Music. And I'm often embarrassed to say, mm, don't remember that. Nope, don't remember that part either. Yeah, I can kind of understand that. It's like, it's, it would be like going down the rapids and then people asking you how the scenery was. It's like, you know what? <laughs> That's a great stay. way of describing it. That's a great way of describing it. I'm trying to stay on the boat here, okay? So, yep, <laughs> that's exactly what it's like. Well, it's funny because I was in a band and of course in the eighties and we we're on the road and we watched much all the time. Our drummer used to lock himself in his room for power hour and he'd have his drum pad and he'd be in there with the headphones on <laughs> banging away to power hour. And you're the one that I remember most. We had our nickname for you and stuff. And uh, we used to watch you on, on there. And I remember you the best because Christopher Ward was a little bit understated, I would say. And, and JD yes. Roberts, everybody knew him. Um, mm-hmm. And then when I talked to Christopher Ward, actually, it's interesting because I interviewed him and I asked him about his experience there and 
he said at the one on the same, I don't want to misquote him, but he said it was relaxed in the sense that he didn't tell you what to do, but it was chaotic in the sense that you had to do stuff <laughs> and you, yeah. you were kind of riffing, but you had to do your research and then riff off the research you did. Exactly. So, but there was um, a very different approach amongst all the people. We didn't really get directed. Mm -hmm. It was really free flow. Yeah. So I was given my, my list of videos that had been curated for that day, usually the night before. And it's up to each of us to decide how we wanted to um, proceed with the next day, right. i.e. Um, we were responsible for doing the research or if we wanted to do any sort of funny shtick or something, it was really up to us. And Christopher and I and JD Roberts uh, really researched a lot. Yeah. Steve Anthony, for example, he didn't. That wasn't, <laughs> but that wasn't his thing. He yeah. was sort of a joker yeah. and he was funny and he, the, the sort of the facts about the music business weren't that interesting to him. He was a showman yeah. and people loved him for that. So each of us had a, a different approach. Mine was more in the line of JD Roberts, who was kind of my mentor, who told me to always be prepared. Yeah. So I always came in with my research done. Christopher Ward was even more meticulous. He was really a musicologist because he was a musician and a performer. So and older than me, so he yeah. had great insights. And pretty impressive guy, really. You know, I talked to him, and I, I was impressed with his understanding and his sort of breadth of knowledge and, and his accomplishments and stuff, too. So he, that's one thing that struck me about a lot of the people. You think on, on Much Musical, it's a bunch of fluff, but but really, the people that you talked to and the people that were on there were pretty substantial people, right? There was people of substance on there. Well, the difference with hiring someone to be on air on much music versus a traditional broadcasting job is that they were hiring personalities at much music. People who were again, self-motivated because there was no direction. There's no writer. It really was uh, a requirement to find people who were genuinely immersed in that culture and in that world. Mm -hmm. So, that's different than a broadcaster. Broadcasters usually have scripts and directors yeah. <laughs> and producers. And that wasn't the way uh, much music was, uh, was created. And that was really Moses's vision where he said, and this was true for not just much music, but also for city TV, which was also his creation, which was all the on-air broadcasters were people who were already doing the stuff that they would eventually talk about on Much Music or City TV. Right. And he said, you, you can't find um, people who are genuine, but you can always take those people who are genuine and teach them broadcasting. He said, that's right. easy. So that's, what, that's the kind of people that um, were found at Much Music. All of us were, are, uh, we, we all were <laughs> um, very big personalities. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point because it's the juxtaposition between sort of competence and personality. So as a broadcaster, you would want the competence or a degree in broadcasting or some kind of a reel that's going to show you that you can speak well and you're smart and you can do those things. And the personality might take a second place to that. Whereas with something like this, it would be inverted, right? You want the personality yeah. and you want the substance too, but the personality has to, I mean, Steve Anthony, of course, was, 
It was great. He was hilarious. Yeah. I, I thought he was great. And again, you're the one that I saw most because you were right at that time, like mid eighties we're on the road. And so the whole tenure of your time there, we would have seen the whole time because we, yeah. we were always watching, always watching much music when we were on the road and stuff. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we were musicians. Yes, I right? know. So, well, we also, we formed a lot of people's connections with their youth. Yeah. Yeah. And creative memories. It's funny. So now you're doing this project at reinvention of the VJs, which is fantastic. So you've got 20 that you've, that you've put online and I will confess, I watched 10 of them. I got through half wow. of them or wow. listened to 10 of them. So I wanted to do all 20, but I didn't have time, but I did 10. Well, you could, yeah. you could, they'll be there I will so listen. you can yeah. do it, yeah. but I don't think I'm going to do it anymore. No, nope. I think I, nope. I did one season. I loved doing it, Yeah. but I don't know about you and how your podcast um, team uh, survives, but the amount of money and time and effort it takes to create a podcast is quite large yeah. and I don't have a sponsor. So I asked people to help me do this for free, which yeah. they did. Well, they not for free, but you know, yeah. for a very uh, minimal fee, which I so appreciated, but it's not right to ask people to work for free. Yeah. So I, I don't have that uh, backer. If I had a backer, I would do the next series, but yeah, I guess for me, it's a little bit different in the sense that it's a labor of love for me. So I'm doing it to help the, the effort, but for me being a career entertainer for over 40 years and, and being able to talk to people like yourself and stuff, it's a real blessing to me. Like I I'm thankful. I've, I talked to Ian Thomas, you know, I talked to Ken Tobias. I talked to people like, like you had experiences talking to those people, but these are the people that I grew up listening to and, and wanted to talk to. And so for me, you know, being a, a modest sort of mid-level entertainer on the West Coast to get a chance to talk. And I know the people out here, like I know the the, the Headpins and the Lover Boys and all that. I've met all those guys because they're out here. But to talk to these guys for me is, has been a labor of love. So it hasn't, the monetary part of it hasn't been a factor for me at all. But I can, I know exactly what you're talking about. It's a <laughs> yeah. ton of work. And it's, it's a, a ton of work. Know, and you're like, okay, for what? And you've done your, you did your time. I mean, you've talked to many, many stars and, and done your thing. But I do appreciate the ones you did. And I learned a lot about you, actually, in the 10 that I listened to. I listened to the ones that were the main ones that I would want to listen to. And, and I learned a lot about you in the process as well and about your approach to to what you did and to what you're doing. And, and I, I relate to it. And I can understand how you were drawn towards things that interest you. That's what I've been like in my life. I, I need stuff that feeds my soul. Does it feed my soul to be talking to you today? Yes, it does. So therefore, I'm yes. happy to do it, you know? Yeah. Well, that's such a, a good way of looking at the world. And I hope more people sort of follow that that route. And from a young age, yep. not for when we, you know, get older and think, oh, I've wasted my life doing what I was told to do. And only yes. now am I going to do what I love. But I really hope that, you know, maybe p people listening to this or people who hear this, who then pass it on to people who are younger, where we encourage people to, what I say is live from the inside out. Yeah. And follow your passions. And, yeah. I just couldn't yeah. have done it any other way. And for me, I guess money has never been really a motivating factor for me. I don't, I mean, I need some to pay my bills. We have to eat, but, but to me, the idea of trying to get rich or trying to, you know, be something I'm not, or, or this never was appealing to me. I just wanted to learn about things and have interesting experiences. 
Well, I think you just said something really interesting. You want to learn about things. And I think um, curiosity is probably the most important skill to have. Because once you lose your sense of wonder or curiosity about life, you that's when you become boring and you start to decline. Yeah, and that's absolutely. And I think I've made that point myself. I think my, my greatest skill and probably yours as well is curiosity. I'm not the smartest guy. I'm not the most educated. I'm not the most successful, but I'm curious. You're also a really good listener. And that is, um, that's also, I wouldn't say unusual, but I, I would say it's really beneficial when you do things like this, when you're interviewing people, hmm. because I've been through the, the process, you know, being interviewed by people who have their list of questions and they ask the question and then the, as soon as the answer is over, they go to their next question mm. rather than turning it into a conversation, which is what you're doing. Right. No, I appreciate that. And that's, I, I wrote a book a number of years ago and I interviewed over 300 people between the age of 65 and a hundred and just asked them questions. Oh, wow. Yeah. Just ask them, you know, are you happy? And if so, why? And I collated all the statistics and it took me two and a half years to do it and talk about listening. I mean, you're talking to somebody who's 90 years old, who's been through lots of things, first world war, second world war, depression, and, and just mind blowing, impressive people. And, and you're drawing them out and listening to what they have to say. And, and it literally gave me chills and, and changed my life in, in significant ways, listening to them. In what way? What is the most significant way that your life changed because um, of that? Well, just one, these people had been through so much. And I said, how, how can you not be bitter? And then one lady said, I learned how to be strong without being hard. Mm. And I thought that's so profound. And I, and I had so many of those moments, you know, like one lady said to me, um, I used to chase material things. And I, and I realized later in life that it's better to sit on an old couch and relate to somebody than sit on a new couch by yourself. Wow. And, Love it. And these things, and I've got like a hundred of those and, and from these people that were just, just regular people, you know, just normal yeah. people, just, you know, were you happily married? Yes. If so, well, why? Why were you happily married? Well, we love, you know, we respected each other, those kinds of answers. So talking to over 300 people like that really warmed my heart. And then, and then I realized that people are a collection of their experiences. So you're talking to somebody who's 90 years old and you say, well, tell me about when you were 15 and oh, me and my girlfriends, we used to do this and that, and they're 15 again. And I got to live that and I didn't expect That's amazing. That. I love it. Super cool. Mm -hmm. So that was, that kind of helped me with the, with the listening in the sense that I wasn't a natural listener, but I, I wanted to hear what they had to say. And these are crumpled up old people. Like it, it and what I realized right away is that it's you and it's me, it's me and you 30 <laughs> years from now. Right? Yes. Right? And, yes, and so absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it was cool. So. Um, and then I wanted to ask you about the video, like the video craze. I don't know if you ever tracked the, um, the statistics of how the, the, I don't know how they track that in Canada, but how popular those shows were, but it seems to me you were, you were at much during the bubble of when it was the most popular. Would that be a fair statement to make? Like late, I late actually eights? don't know. I, yeah, I think we were probably, um, I think we probably, I mean, I don't know, but certainly people freak out, you know, when we start talking about the early days at much, because that's where it was new and exciting. And then, you know, as the years progressed, technology started to change and YouTube uh, became the place where you can stream videos on demand. I think at the same time, 
Bell Media bought Much Music. I was long gone at this yeah, point, right. but they bought Much Music and they have a very different approach to broadcasting. So they do like to pick the shiny, uh, call them broadcasters. They don't look for people with personality because they have directors and writers, right. etc. Yeah. So they look for more, theirs is a much more sort of superficial approach. And, you know, it just affected the whole vibe and it just became less creative, mm-hmm. less exciting and more conventional. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. Cause I was going to ask you about that, like from the band's perspective, like, you know, you're showing the videos and then you could go through a hundred videos and pick three or four of them and, and run those. But from a band's perspective, it was a real double-edged sword because every band needed a video. If you were going to put out a single, you had to have a video. And some of them were very expensive. There was, you know, six figure videos out there that were, that the bands couldn't get the money back from. And the record companies were spending a pile of money on these videos to try to put them out. And I thought that that was the way the music business would be in perpetuity. And it, and it waned. It didn't end up being that. Well, I do think that it, I think you still need that visual um, representation. So yes, you still need video, uh, the technology, the, you know, the cameras, etc. all of that can be done from home. So perhaps it could be less expensive because there's, you know, with iPhones and editing, et cetera, it's easier to sort of control your image um, more efficiently and less expensively. And then there is the sort of the back and forth of social media where it isn't in some ways expensive to use social media to own your social channels. But in fact, it is because it takes a lot of time and effort, which is actually equal to money right and a lot of people have to hire social media social media managers etc so um it's different now but the requirement is still to create visual content that would sort of um create a relationship with consumers yeah without spending 50 grand to do i mean we spent 10 on a video and we thought that was expensive at the time but we're just young guys we're trying you know and that well, it was yeah. Ten thousand is a lot of money even today yeah yeah exactly and some of them were 50 some of them were 100 or more you know yeah and back in the day record companies actually had money yeah. um because they hadn't messed up yet and now record companies don't have very much money because they didn't pay attention to the changing technology. They ignored streaming. They ignored the Pandoras. Yes. And they lost control of the business. And so now the people who have the money are the streaming companies, uh, the digital companies, not the mainstream record right. companies. And they figured out how to monetize it, right? That's what you're talking about, the yep. podcast. It's really hard to monetize the podcast. You can get sponsors and stuff, but to get money from people to, to listen to them and stuff is very challenging. Right. As, mm-hmm. as you know. Yep. So, well, interesting. And then when I saw you do, you did lots of interviews. It's funny. Like I've, I've read lots of biographies in my life, lots of music biographies. And I have this thing where when I read it, I decide whether I respect the person less, the same or more when I finish <laughs> the book. Right. <laughs> so, and it's, I'm very okay. po- pointed about no it. Pressure. No, no pressure. No pressure. But I do, because I, you know, sometimes you read a, a biography and you're thinking that is despicable. This guy's just a disgusting human being. And other times you read it and go, ah, that was pretty cool. You know, like I, I respect the guy more. 
And so then I thought to myself in relating it to you, you, you must've had similar experiences. I, I, I know your red hot chili pepper story very well. I think you've shared that one quite a bit, but, um, but how did you do that when you interviewed people? Did you respect them less, the same or more? And how did that work out for you? Well, I, I didn't, I wasn't that specific. Yeah. So um, I can't say that I had that same rating <laughs> system, but certainly there are experiences when I would interview a band and would expect that they would be jerks. And in fact, they were fantastic. And sometimes when I thought they would be really boring, they turned out to be really interesting. And then mm. there's the ones who you think will be really interesting and they're actually quite boring. Mm. So you never can anticipate. Um, weirdly, one of my favorite interviews was from Blackie Lawless from a band called Wasp. Yeah. Um, I detest that band. I hate everything about them. Uh, but I adored interviewing Blackie Lawless. Hmm. He was really bright. He was interesting. He was actually highly educated. And I, I don't know, I loved yeah. talking to him. There you go. Even though I hate their music. <laughs> Yeah, I couldn't hum you one of their tunes, uh, but no, well, I don't think they're hummable. <laughs> yeah, you just you have go. to yell them. It's just like speed metal noise yeah. garbage. Yeah, that's that's not my my scene. But but it's funny because when some of them come in, like they're some of them are living in an alternate reality, right? And and it's funny. I was talking to a friend of mine who's who's in a quite a famous band, and we talked for about a half an hour. And I which band? I'm not saying. But, oh come but, on! But I have, Give me a clue. I have to say, well, because what I I talked to him for about a half an hour, and I said, well all the stuff you just told me, you could never say in a podcast. He goes, yeah, yeah, I know I couldn't do that. <laughs> so there was a lot of, you know, Coke and, and I mean, a lot of those bands were coked up and they were all sleeping with several different people. They're living in alternate reality and a lot of them reflect back on it and go that way. And I'm thinking some of them must've come into much in various stages of sobriety and, and attitude and, and just living in alternate reality. And you kind of look at it and going, okay, this is uh, okay. So how did you deal with that? Mm, just trying to think. Um, yeah, we've had, I mean, you just, like I said before, you just never knew what you would get when someone would come in. And I'm sure, again, this is where my memory fails me. I'm, I would happy, happily out people, but I just can't really remember because they become, they become unmemorable. Yeah. You know, when someone comes in who's really wrecked, yeah. they're not interesting. And so you just kind of get them in and out. Right. Just ask. And they, they just become, well, that was irrelevant, yeah. if you know what I mean. And they, the ones that we remember are the ones where they're, they're lit right up, yeah. like Crowded House and mm -hmm. In Excess, like bands that were there to play. Yeah. They were there to uh, show the audience a good time, right. who understood that it was re their responsibility to be entertaining and to, again, create a real relationship with their audience. Duran yeah. um, Duran is one of them. I interviewed them twice and they were fantastic. Oh, cool. They were silly. They were smart. They were sexy. Um, they were kind. So they, they were the kind of band that I, I didn't think that I would like yeah. because they're kind of pretty boys. But I loved them. Mm -hmm. I thought that they were really special guys. Yeah, and and probably sober and intelligent. But I mean, some of them had well known. I mean, Kurt Cobain, Boy George. I mean, these people were publicly outed as heroin addicts. I mean, it was everyone knew that. I right? interviewed um, Kurt Cobain. So was he sober and straight when you interviewed him, or no? He seemed like it. Yeah. He seemed, he seemed really 
genuine mm, okay. and very normal yeah. and very polite and uh, shy yeah. to some degree. And he opened right up. Cool. And he was probably one of my favorite interviews. Okay. And, you know, and again, I did not expect that. Yeah. He was not what I expected at all. Yeah. And then, you know, a band like Motley Crue, I mean, they were living the glam rock thing, right? So lots of my friends said, you know, when they were coming up and they were at their peak, they were the worst. And then they became humble later when, when their crest was falling a little bit. Yeah. And, I interviewed Aerosmith yeah. and they were the coolest guys. So they were old school, you know what I mean? Like yeah. they were like the party guys, but they were just fun and naughty, Yeah. but fun. Uh, I hated the guys from Kiss. Yeah. I thought they were rude and they were misogynist and I despised them. So, the, you know, but they're, they come from the same era and they both are kind of, you know, bad boys, but one of them does it respectfully and one of them, the, I just found them moronic. Yeah, I, I can see that. <laughs> Uh, but I think that was, the, they're caught up. And so I guess that's what I'm getting at. You have people that have come in that are living in alternate reality and it's not necessarily drugs. It could be drugs, but it's also being full of themselves and their celebrity status has completely taken them over and they strut in like they own the world and like yeah. peons around them and stuff. So how did you deal with that? You just you know, look them in the eye and. Just, oh, well, you know. my whole attitude, which is, I think what yours is when you do your interviews is it doesn't matter how famous somebody is. You're, interviewing a person. Yeah. So my interviews were always really um, non-sycophantic, mm -hmm. if that is such a word. Yeah, I think we'll use it. And, yeah. and really, uh, I really couldn't give a shit that someone was famous. Yeah. I mean, for a couple of reasons. Number one, I just imagined if I was, if the tables were turned on me to be told, oh my God, you're so amazing. And to, you know, giggle nervously is very uncomfortable for the person on the other end. It doesn't allow them to show their best self because mm -hmm. interviews aren't about the interviewer. It's about the other person being able to tell their story. So it was always important for me to ask questions that are really open-ended and to get people to share their opinion on things or to tell their story. And if they were rude, I would call them out right there. Yeah. I would, say, you know, I don't understand why you're being so rude right now. Yeah. Like I would make that part of the interview because then it, it shows who they are yeah. as people. Well, interesting. Um, but yeah. it, it didn't, it didn't, uh, it, it, it never um, made me feel uncomfortable too much. I guess that I wouldn't, I, I guess there have been times where they made me uncomfortable, but I never lost control. And that was their goal, right? Yeah. Is to make you feel uncomfortable. And it's a power trip but they no one could take my power that was i guess the most important piece of it yeah they could be naughty but i still was in control yeah that's that's a good way to put it and i, I think i was thinking about the celebrity status right so there's sort of a pecking order you know like you know paul mccartney's at the top and and then you work down from there and prince and you have this sort of pecking order but you know being a vj in your situation you were a celebrity in your own right and one thing i i noticed about when David Letterman first started, you know, he was kind of a hungry guy. He was a weatherman and that, but, but later on, he was more of a celebrity than some of the celebrities that he was interviewing. So he almost talked yeah. down to them. It started to bother me after a while. I, I agree with that. I actually 
stopped enjoying his interviews because yeah. it suddenly became about him. Absolutely. I'm glad that you saw that too, because I thought, well, he's a bigger celebrity than the guy he's interviewing. Mm -hmm. like, His fake, ha, yeah. ha, ha. Yeah, I know. I, so yeah, you remember when Dave first started and he was dropping yep. jars of mustard off the buildings and stuff. He was hilarious and he was hungry mm -hmm. and he was, he was humble, but he lost that. Yeah. So how did you sort of deal with that? Because you were a celebrity in your own right, especially around Toronto and, and in Canada. Yeah, the thing is that being a celebrity, first of all, being a Canadian celebrity and being a celebrity at uh, Much Music um, <laughs> was not very celebrity-ish. Um, we were not given any perks or, I mean, I got free clothes, which was great. Um, and I got free records and tickets to see shows, yeah. but there, I lived a very normal life. I just had to do my job. So I, I, you know, it's, it's weird, but all of us at Much Music were kept very humble by, by our management, I guess. And we were no more important than the sound guy than the camera guy. We were a team of people and our jobs were the on-air people, yeah. but you know, we weren't allowed to have an ego there. Mm -hmm. it just wasn't accepted. Which is probably a good thing in, in retrospect, right? Absolutely. I, it doesn't serve you well. Yeah. It serves no one well if you suddenly get an ego and you think you're more important than somebody. It's not true. I'm no more important than the cameraman because guess what? If the cameraman doesn't like me, I will look like shit. Yeah. Right? So we are all interconnected and interdependent. And those, and there aren't many, those who didn't understand that, they suffered. Yeah. Yeah, fair point. And, and I, I was the same way in the music business. I loved the sound guys and I would be in the back of the truck and I'd have my head in the back of an amp rack and I didn't care. I'm a worker. I'm just a, one of the guys. If I'm the singer, okay, I'll mm. sing when it's time to sing. But otherwise, I'm just one of the guys. But in your situation, it would be more easy to get caught up in the lifestyle or the hype. I mean, you could go to the clubs and jump the line or if you chose. Oh, yeah, to, I like that part. You know? <laughs> that, that was good. I miss that, to be honest. That's probably the only thing I miss is I miss not having to pay for concert tickets. I miss that. Yeah. And I miss not being sort of uh, being put first in line. Yeah. I miss that because now I'm just kind of regular. Yeah. There was a famous story of Rod Stewart going to one of the clubs in New York and they, they said he's Rod Stewart and they wouldn't let him in because they didn't know who he was. <laughs> it was a younger club, right? <laughs> <laughs> so, don't you know who I exactly, am? Exactly, it was one of those. But um, but I was going to ask you that because you know a lot of times the VJs or the DJs around Vancouver and and even the weather people and everything they do MC gigs and they go out and they introduce concerts and all that stuff. I've worked with many of them over the years. Did you do a lot of that or or some of that? Yeah, I did. I did a ton of that, and I still do it to some degree. I'm that's uh, probably one of the my favorite things yeah. that I still do. I get hired to MC events and moderate panels and, nice. you know, use my comfort in front of an audience and my ability to think on, on my feet yeah. in, in a whole bunch of different, um, venues. When I say venues, I mean, corporate, um, opportunities. And then some of the things are still related to music, but not as many anymore, but I, that's my favorite thing. Yeah. 
So when you were at Much, if, if, if a local band was coming or sorry, an international band was coming to a concert and they wanted you to introduce them or do that, could you make side cash doing that? Would you get paid? To, oh, yeah. And they didn't care? You could moonlight? Oh, no, I had, um, I, I'm very entrepreneurial. And while I worked at Much Music, I had a hat company. I oh. designed hats oh, cool. and uh, sold them for a few years. But I also started the Eric M. Roadshow. Um, it was with a company called Pink's Productions. And they would book me in high schools and venues really around um, Southern Ontario for the most part. And But I would get flown around the country and I would host events. I would host the night hmm. and I'd make cash. Perfect. A lot of it was, a lot of it went right to paying off my mortgage. Yeah. Like it was, it was a very lucrative time for me. I, I worked really hard because I would work, you know, I would do, um, the much music thing. Plus I would do my hat thing. Plus I would do voiceovers for, you know, commercials, etc. Um, I was in, I did some sort of TV shows where I was acting and then I hosted a lot of events or would front those kinds of events. Yeah. And man, that was, I would do that again in a sec. Well, I still do it in a second. That's, well, I'm I like doing, I like, I mean, probably like you, we like, we have a skill uh, to communicate, and then you like to apply that skill in in any way that presents itself. Yeah, and the reason I asked that was because I was curious about that. I, I assumed that you did, but then you're sort of married to the brand of Much Music, right? So if you're going doing a side gig and it's Erica M is there, well, Much Music is the next two words that come out of everybody's mouth, right? So how yeah, how did you they, work I, that? I don't know, but I got away with it. <laughs> okay, well, good. I was I was in direct competition with the Much Music Roadshow. Oh. And uh, somehow they let me do it. Oh, interesting. Yeah, that's why I wondered about that because I was looking into it and I thought, yeah, if, if you did that and it wasn't condoned by them and then you're making side cash, you're kind of moonlighting and piggybacking off the brand that they've, the platform that they've given you in a sense. Yep. Yeah, well, cool. Well, I'm glad you, that's a good story. <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you were able to do it. Yeah, I'm very entrepreneurial. Yep. I just make things happen and I don't wait around for people. Well, that emerged very clearly when I was doing the research for this and listening to your podcast and then, you know, what the stuff that I read. So, and that speaks well of you, but then on the other side, it wasn't all happy, right? Like you felt like you were treated sort of unfairly or badly. Uh, at well, I, I was getting the same treatment that most people uh, receive there, which is, I think I mentioned it before where we, uh, we weren't treated like stars. No. Um, I was told on several occasions that I was replaceable. And I knew that wasn't true. No. I mean, of course, there could be someone else who can do the same job as me, but they would never be me. No. So it was, in fact, a really interesting learning for me as an employee to think, why would your boss tell you ongoing in an ongoing way that you were replaceable? Because what that did is it, it led me to do things like start my own roadshow, um, do all these sort of outside things because I felt like at any time they might let me go because they didn't appreciate me. Hmm. So when I started my own business like 15 years ago and I started to hire people, I did the opposite. I treated each person like they were not replaceable. And I told them that. Yeah. And I treated them like that. And when they wanted to quit, no, I'm talking about people who were shit. 
they were fired. Mm. But the people who were good, who had issues or they, they wanted to quit because they were bored or whatever, I never let them quit. I would say, well, what is it that you're not getting anymore? How can I help you? And then we would change their job or I would change something in the company so that they would stay. Mm -hmm. And that was based on what I learned at Much Music, what not to do with your employees. Right. Yeah, I guess it's it's a bit of a double-edged sword because you know the, the company is providing a platform. And so people step onto that platform and then they become sort of, they can become puffed up. And then at some point they can think that they're bigger than the platform. And I guess that's one way of, you know, a negative way of reining that in. You have, you just exhibited a positive way of reining that in. Say we have a platform that supplies all of us with our livelihood and the things that we want to do, but none of us is bigger than the platform itself. We all understand that, but some people go diva, quote unquote, and, and wouldn't get that. Yeah, but I didn't. Yes, I wasn't yeah. diva. Yeah. I worked, I was so proud uh, being a part of Much Music. I loved it so much. And when they said that to me, it really, it kind of broke my heart yeah. and it broke my trust with the company. And I think that, especially now, it's funny because back in the day, people were very connected to the companies that they work for, you know, the gold watch, the whole thing, you know, you, you yeah. get a job at a company and you spend much of your career at the same place. Now, as we know, things have changed and in fact, even more so today, the industry has shifted so much that corporate corporations are desperate to keep people. There's a great resignation. People are saying, you can't treat me like this. I'm going to go somewhere else. Yeah. And so it's things have really changed from back in the day when I was an employee to the way employees, um, the kind of power that employees have today. It's mm -hmm. really shifted. Yeah. I guess from a from a the person who's hiring you, their perspective. I mean, if you have somebody who's heart and soul, I mean, that's what I'm. I've always been that way with the music business. I'm I'm in I'm in 100. percent I'm heart and soul. I'll do whatever I got to do. And you, you're giving your heart and soul to that uh, company and that platform, so it becomes personal at some point, right? You're like, hey, I'm giving. I'm basically married to this job here. I'm all in. I'm giving my heart and soul. Be careful how you treat that. 100. percent But that's. I think that's that should be true in life everywhere. Yes, that's yeah. true in your business. Yeah. It's true with friends. It's true in whatever you know, wherever you are, whatever circumstance. I think that 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 should be just the way people are treated. And so I feel like corporations can't get away with that mm. anymore. Yeah, and that's been my problem in the music business. I, I I gravitate away from people who don't treat my humanity properly, and I gravitate towards people who recognize my humanity. I had an argument with an agent one time. I said, "Well, you're exploiting people. Like you're treating us like commodities." He goes, "It's just a commodity. I I buy and sell acts and all." I said, "No, I'm a person. I have two kids mm -hmm. at home. I I I'm I'm not that. If you look at mm -hmm. me like a commodity, burn my number because I'm not going to deal with you." Did he look at you differently after that? Well, yeah, he actually you know, liked my attitude in the sense, but I just said, you know, I'm too soft, I guess. They see in business, right? As you well know, it's all hardcore. It's it's a blood sport and you you either win or you lose. It's no win-win. If you win and the other person loses, that's just a good day of business. I don't do that. I go win-win. If, if, if I'm doing but business I, and somebody doesn't win, I'm not doing it. But you see, I think that that mindset is, is changing. I think that is what's changing. Yeah. I think that that 
people are starting to, not starting to, people this generation are saying, actually, I don't want to live to work anymore. Yeah. And so what that means is they'll walk away, which means that these companies are suddenly having to look at these people as human beings and serve their needs as humans. Yeah. And that means there's a huge shift in in human resources, in HR, and yeah. keeping people is way different now than than it used to be. And I hope, I hope feelings, that's true. I hope that's true, and I think it is. Well, it's shifting. Yeah. It's shifting. Yep. It's just this, you know, the U.S. sort of mentality of, of business is it's a blood sport, and you have to win. So all that matters is winning. I mean, one of the famous uh, quotes from... I won't say who, but it was, you know, friend or foe, go for the dough. That was mm. their business model. Friend or foe, go for the dough. I don't Yeah, I mean, there, I guess we all have the, um, we can all choose which corporations we want to work for. Yeah. And there, there are, you know, corporate cultures. And a lot of people who are looking for jobs, I see now, I'm in a lot of private groups now, especially from women who, uh, women who are, entrepreneurs or their um, very high executives and they talk about the the different interviews that they've gone on and the different jobs that they're considering and corporate culture is at the top of their list mm -hmm. so that didn't used to be a thing but now it is yeah it's like how did they treat you in the interview what is their style and if they don't like that the way they're treated or sort of the the offerings of the company in terms of their corporate culture, they walk away from the job. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good thing, but what we're talking about in the past, if, if you were looking at someone's humanity, that would be seen as a weakness, not a strength, True. right? hundred percent. Like you're, you're my boy today. You make me money. Yep. What have you done for me lately? You're gone. Yes. Yes. And that's, I think, I think it is shifting. Well, let's hope. It, it, certainly, in my world, I would never, I would never do that or or be part of that. And that's why I walked away. And this was in the '80s too, in the late mm -hmm. '80s. But you know, especially also when you're young too. Like, did you feel exploited at any time or taken advantage of when you were younger? I mean, I've heard so many stories about that. I don't think so. To be honest, I was always paid for the work that I did. I got to do the work that I loved. I don't think I was ever exploited. I just okay. don't take bullshit. Yeah, good. Good for you. And and you know that's what I would tell my daughter too, right? I always said to her to empower her, I said, "Go out and deal with the world. If you need me to step in or help you, I will. Otherwise, you look at it on you look after it yourself." And she would come yeah, to me for advice, but most of the time mm -hmm. she was strong. I mostly I did that. My parents taught that to me. But when I had a couple of um, renegotiations with Much Music, for example, and they got ugly, I called my dad. Yeah. I went to the parking lot. I called my dad. He gave me advice. I went back in and it was fine. Yeah. So, yeah. but you, that's, in my case, it was my dad, but a lot of people have mentors, business mentors, to get advice from people who, you know, understand the, the game of business. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good word because that's what it is, and especially more so back then, I think. But so looking back for you, like, was there anything you would change about how you handled things or decisions that you made or things that you did, if you could change it? Hmm. No, I, I, I'll tell you about a time that I was really proud of what I did. 
Um, it was, I had been working there probably for four years and I found out that I was getting paid less than all the men. Oh, Not shocking, but when you hear it firsthand, it was kind of upsetting because at the time I was getting more male than anybody. Because how do you judge who's most popular? Well, at the time it was, I got the most male. Well, it was you. From, so I, from my perspective, it was you. Yeah. It was it, it, like, I knew that I had created, a, you know, like a, a, a really great persona at Much Music. People like the name Erica M. They like the fact that I wore hats. They, you know, like oh. I did a lot of things to create this persona. So I went to the boss and I asked for a raise and I, you know, brought all my ammunition. So I told them I get the most mail and you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And he said to me, yeah, I hear that you're really difficult to work with. <laughs> and I looked at him and I was like, okay, that's so not true. And I went, mm, fuck you. I quit. Oh. And I left. <laughs> I left. I walked out of there, called my dad. I told him what happened. And my dad said, oh, he just pulled the oldest trick in management. Yeah. That's what, what they do is when they, when you negotiate, they start to try and make you feel like you're not worth the raise. And because at the time I was probably 28, yeah. I think I was 28 or 27 at the time. So quite young, maybe 26. Anyway, quite young, not a lot of experience in negotiating. Um, so anyway, I just took my phone off the hook at the time because there was just the advent of cell phones at the time. So um, I just stopped answering my phone. I called a friend of mine. His name is Tim Thorny. He's a songwriter. And he was one of my best friends. And I called him up crying. I said, I quit my job. <laughs> and he said, Emmy, what happened? And I told him. And he said, good for you. He goes, can you write songs? I said, I don't know. <laughs> he goes, come on over. So I wrote, we went over, I went over to his place and we wrote a song. And he goes, not bad, Emmy. Let's do another one. Oh, cool. And uh, we became a songwriting duo. We ended up starting a record label and we ended up winning Juno awards and country music awards. That's yeah. down the road, you know, cause we wrote together for 10 years. Um, but back to when I quit, um, apparently people were trying to call me all weekend, but I didn't answer the phone. Oh. Finally, my boss called on the Monday or Tuesday and said, Erica, come on, this is crazy. I said, I want that raise. He said, fine, you've got the raise, come back. Yeah. So I started a new career as a songwriter and I got my raise. Nice. Well, it, that's funny because when I was doing the research for this interview, I didn't know that about you. I, I hate to admit that, but I didn't know that you were a songwriter. But it's interesting, the, the, your approach was sort of intuitive by quitting. I, I took a seminar years ago called Effective Negotiating by this guy, Chester Karras. And one of the things that he said in there that really struck me was, never enter a negotiation that you're not prepared to walk away from. Uh, yes, I've heard that. Yeah. You're right. You got to right. be ready to walk or else. I wasn't. Gotta, no, but you, but you, you feigned it. You feigned it. I, <laughs> I, I mean, I, that, I didn't have that knowledge walking in. No. So I, I wasn't prepared to walk away because I didn't expect anything negative to happen. I thought he would say, oh, thanks so much for bringing this to our attention. Let me go back to the team and see what we can do for you. You know, like yeah. a normal human thing. And instead he turned it around on me and I was like, what are you doing? But see, that's where you'd feel like a commodity. Like you're, you're my yes. honor per personality from this slot to that slot. You know, what else you got? Also, I was 
incredibly insulted that rather than acknowledge all the hard work that I'd put in over the years and devotion to my job, which I loved and was so proud of, he made up something that was it's like so untrue. I, the last thing that I would be would be difficult to work with. Mm -hmm. Well, the diva charge is an easy one to make. Yes. Right? Unless you're yes. completely a patsy and you just say yes to everything, then you're a diva. Right. Right. It's like, right. yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. No, well, good. I'm, that, that's, that's a good story. And then what about the sacrifices that you made along the way? Like, you know, family, relationships, lifestyle. I don't know. You, you're married to the job. Like, you're so engrossed in what you're doing. It must have been 24-7 on your mind. Like, was there sacrifices that you made along the way that, that were worth it? I don't think I really had to make any sacrifices. Okay. Uh, maybe a, a few friends of mine were jealous that I got more attention than them. But that would have been the worst of it because... The way much music was, it was so loose that I would just bring my friends in and they would come on TV with me because hmm. we would, you know, I, you probably remember, it was like, I would bring in my grandmother and my mom, yeah, it was great. whoever, whoever was dropping by the office at the time, we would just do stuff together. So I really had a normal life. Yeah, no good. For for the most part. Well, you didn't come across like you had an attitude. You didn't come across like you were drugged out or live in an alternate reality there was a real humanity i've never done i never did drugs yeah, good for you um i just didn't i kind of in some ways i guess i really didn't fit in the music business which you know in the 80s and stuff was apparently fueled by coke and i had no idea yeah and i remember being at an event that much music was hosting and there was someone who i knew really well who worked at much music and there was a whole bunch of us sitting around a table. And I said to my friend, I think so-and-so is on Coke. Because she was talking a lot and talking yeah. really quickly. And he looked at me like I was nuts. And he goes, uh, everyone's on Coke right now. Yeah. And I was like, I had no idea. Yeah. None. Yeah, it's funny. It's it, it's that naivety. I, I have a similar story because I, I drank a bit and smoked pot. I haven't done any of that for years, but uh, I never did cocaine and it, not even once did I ever do it. And people are around me and they're going, hey, let's go skiing. Let's go skiing. And I'm like, oh yeah, night skiing up at uh, you know, up in Whistler. <laughs> I'm a total idiot. I'm sitting there. They were. I, you know. I didn't know what that, uh, sorry. I had never heard of that either. No. So that's why I'm laughing because is that what it means? I was a total idiot. Well, yeah, he wanted to go ski and they wanted to get some Coke and do snow, they called it, right? So so they go oh. and skiing and I didn't get it. And I'm right. saying, oh yeah, well, you know, up in Gross Mountain, they go night skiing all the time and they're all kind of <laughs> laughing at me, right? And I'm like, oh geez, mm. like what a nerd. Mm -hmm. But I just wasn't into it. But I mean, it was a snowstorm in the music business. Like if you, you know, I remember reading about um, when they recorded Layla with uh, the uh, Allman brothers and like Dwayne Allman and, and Eric Clapton, they said there was drugs everywhere in the studio, anything you wanted, heroin, Coke, speed, whatever, it was all there. And I thought, well, I would never be in that environment. I just would feel too uncomfortable. I would have left. Yeah. It's just not my thing. And I, I just feel like, I feel like drugs are a sign of weakness because you can't feel inspired or happy or enlightened or whatever those feelings are that drugs give you on your own, that you need to take yeah. something to make you whatever that is. So I just never felt the need to do it. Yeah, fair enough. And I, I've, I've said that too, that it's fake. 
it, it makes you feel it's happy. Fake. It's carnival in your mind for a little while, and it, but it's fake. And and I've, yeah. I've said to my friends because I've had lots of friends that got caught up in it really badly, and I always said to them, you know, you're not living your best life when you're doing drugs, and and that sort of leave it at that. So it's, it's not judgmental, but it's a statement of fact. Yeah, I I think I was judgmental, and still am. Well, I am, I am. And I tell my kids all the time, don't do drugs, don't do drugs. <laughs> they laugh at me. I say it all the time and they laugh. They just actually laugh because yeah. I say it so often. And I say it like that, don't do drugs. Don't well, do that's drugs. a mom talking drugs. to her kids. I mean, yeah. I, I just had some, some people in my life who I know they're good people. They just got caught up in, hey, try this. Hey, smoke this cocoa puff. Here's snort some coke. Well, here's the thing. You know, like, You're right mm. that it is just their mom telling, but it's also a person who was super cool in the 80s who interviewed, interviewed Kurt Cobain, yeah. had the most stylish wardrobe in all of the country. Like I had a lot of, my kids now understand that I was cool back then. Yeah. And so it there's a little bit, and I tell them like, I never did drugs. I didn't, I didn't have to. Yeah. I don't follow the pack. I, I succeeded on my own terms. And that's why I want them to succeed on their own terms. And so when people offer you drugs, I said, just say no. Yeah. Like, just don't. Yeah. No, that's true. And, and that's kind of what I had decided. And, and years after, when I, when I studied counseling and stuff, one of the guys said something that really struck me. He said that the time to decide is not when you're in the moment. It's to decide beforehand. So if you go to a party and there's drugs there, you don't have to say no because you've already decided that you're going to say no. So it's not a, oh, should I or shouldn't I, devil on the shoulder, an angel on the other shoulder kind of a decision. You've already decided. Yeah. And that's kind of the yeah. way I was. Like I'd smoke pot, but I didn't want to. I wasn't going to do anything else. And I've seen every drug consumed. I'm not proud to say that, but as a musician, you're just around that environment. Yeah. And I just didn't didn't like it. So. Yep. Well, no good. Thanks for sharing your thoughts on that. So we cannot end the interview on a stupid discussion about drugs. No, no. Okay. That's, I got one more question. Okay. Fine. <laughs> so what's on your bucket list? So, cause uh, when I, when I studied counseling, one of the questions that they used to ask people in a, in a counseling session was if you could wave a magic wand and make everything the way that you wanted, what would that look like? And how would you get it? So for you, what's your bucket list? What do, what do you need to do before you, uh, before you wrap this life up? I need to write a novel. Oh, cool. Have you got it planned already? I have an idea. Good. It's a it's a YA novel. Which is But we were just talking about it is at dinner last night with my family and they're like, Come on, mom, get your act together. <laughs> and I was saying, I need some structure. I don't know how to do it. I have an idea, but um, I need to take a class. I need to be part of a structured environment to do it. Yeah. Well, good for you. That's that's a, a cool aspiration. In fiction, obviously, right? Young adult, is that what you mean by YA? Yep. Yeah. Yep. Well, good for you. Yep. And then, so you're not going to do any more podcasts, you said? You did 20? I would love to do uh, another podcast, but it probably won't be on the same topic. Okay. So I'm I'm hoping that I can find a partner who wants me to do it with them or, you know, some sort of a company that wants me to do it, you know, be their face right. or be their voice to do something like that. Um, I don't really feel like starting from the beginning, you know, starting uh, on my own. I've, uh, I've been running companies for the last 20 years. And I've been running, I launched a company in 2006 called YMC or what, Yummy Money yep. Club. I did see that. And with, um, and there's a digital marketing agency that's attached to it. So I've been essentially 
running a corporation for 15 years and I'm tired of being the boss. Mm -hmm. I'm tired of starting from scratch and building things. So what I'm hoping for is that people say, you know what, we've got this idea for a project. I would love Erica M to come in, bring all of her skills and help us bring it to life rather than me starting something right. from scratch. Yeah, fair enough. And and you've certainly done your share and it's it the amount of energy required as you said earlier and although in the podcast you didn't interview JD Roberts, I thought he would be one of the first ones that you would have Well, I did talk to him and um, he's so sweet. I emailed him and I said, you know, it'd be really great if you do it. And he called me okay. and he said that Fox won't let me because they're very, very controlling. Okay. And when I called him, it was around a year and a half ago. It was right around when Trump was still sort of um, ever present. And his background in the music business was not helping him as a trusted anchor person. So they didn't want to um, have him do an interview about his past life in the music business. Oh. So maybe one day, yeah, interesting. Well, he'll, when he leaves, uh, he and I will do something yeah. together. Yeah, okay. Well, fair enough. I appreciate it. I, that's one thing I meant to ask you about because I, I, I didn't think it was anything other than he's a serious journalist and he went down to the States and did well. You know, he's a, a hometown boy who did well. We're all proud of him and what he did and what he's been able to do. So I didn't see any negative side to that, but I can see where being the face of something they want to control. That's why I asked you about doing the other shows when you were on much, right? It's like, this is our boy and we need to control what he does. Yeah. Right? So. Yeah. Well, and also the U S is very different than Canada, mm. you know, yeah. so he's in the big leagues there. Yeah. And, um, but he was just very generous, called me up right okay. away. And, okay. Yeah. Well, good. Well, good that you did the 20. I did listen to 10. I'll listen to the other 10. We'll give you some love on the, uh, on dusty discs and, and try to encourage people. I'll share it on my Facebook and whatnot. And we'll get some people to, uh, to log on there and listen to them. They're really interesting. You're a great interviewer. You have lots of things to share. And like I said, you're, you're a bit of a historian as well because you lived it. So you got some cred there. Right? But I think also that the premise of the uh, podcast was twofold. One of it one was just to go back in time and clean things up for me. I wanted to, you know, connect with people who I used to work with and ask them if they had the same experiences as me, because it was traumatic in many ways. Yep. But also it was, it's not just a podcast about talking about being a VJ on much music. It's, it's equally about the art of reinvention, especially these days in the last two years. So many people have decided that they want to switch careers um, either they've been forced to because their business, you know, they're, the, you know, if they're in restaurants or entertainment, um, those industries are really hurting. Companies are closing right and left. Or there's people who say, I've always wanted to do X, Y, and Z, and I'm now I'm going to do it. Yeah. And so every conversation with these people, I sort of go through, as you know, because you listen to yep. them, their life trajectory yep. and the highs and the lows and how they made their decisions and how they got through the tough times when they made a decision to move on to something new or when they got fired. Cause a lot of people, if not fired from much music, they were fired from other opportunities or those, th those opportunities ended or they had, you know, really tough um, personal experiences, family experiences. And so, you know, this is more speaking to you as a counselor um, 
that that was I wanted to show that we all have really tough times mm-hmm. and that we do need skills to get through the good times and the bad and even old VJs you know have struggled yep but then like the old saying like the adversity teaches you more than life than the affirmity you know when you're being affirmed because if everyone pats you on the back and says you're great you don't grow much from that right exactly <laughs> so, exactly no that's that's great so i really appreciate you taking the time i mean the, the thought that i could talk to erica m to me was uh, quite exciting so <laughs> I, was, I was really thrilled that you were uh, Many thanks to Erica M for being part of the Liner Notes podcast and sharing some insights from her life in the music business. More information is available at ericam.com and then Reinvention of the VJ is the podcast on that. She's also very active on social media with links on the website. So please check that out. And we hope you enjoyed the podcast and invite you to subscribe to it and share it on social media so others can enjoy it as well. And we invite you to listen to Dusty Discs Radio on Tuesdays and Thursdays to hear music from the Canadian artists you're hearing on this show. So until next time, I'm Dan Harris.